0: You know even if you do better with all of the other kind of key things that we're looking at if you're still producing so much and you know a lot of it's not going sold what are they doing with that unsold stuff as well as you know people will wear these things like twice and then they throw them away so that's you know that's a whole consumer behavior shift that i think is already starting to change a little bit but we can talk about that a little bit later
1: Today on Animalia, we are talking about the state of greenwashing in the fashion and apparel industry. If you're someone who cares about where you're buying from but has lots of questions on what's legit and what's not legit, well, uh, you're not alone. And we are discussing that today with with Sasha. Uh, I'm James,
0: and I'm Nari. I'm Sasha.
1: And thanks for being here today, Sasha.
0: Thanks. Glad to be here.
1: And so I want to I want to start by just sort of laying the groundwork of what we mean by greenwashing, and so you know, for for context for listeners, I believe the the, the term greenwashing was coined by Jay Westervelt in 1986. Essentially, we've had this notion of greenwashing since 1986. But I'm uh, curious, Sasha, for you, what does greenwashing mean? Like, what when you think of like for you personally? What, what does greenwashing mean?
0: Greenwashing means to me, um, either making really vague statements using very vague or trending kind of keywords that sound good. Um, or basically just saying anything that over embellishes what you're actually doing.
1: So there's, there's lots we want to get into on the greenwashing topic, but for, for listeners, just to set the table. Can you tell us a little more about your career in fashion uh what what brought you into fashion in the first place? Why did you pursue it, and then what the next chapter of your career in this industry looks like and why
0: sure um I actually started in finance, which I don't think very many people know um but I found it so boring i mean i I was just pulling my hair out like crying myself to sleep, not not literally, but just you know embellishing here about how I just wanted to do something that I could actually relate to, that I found interesting, that I found fun. Um, But for me, it just wasn't there. So I actually started in fashion more on the tech side of things. So I got to London when e-commerce was really just starting to become figured out and obviously e-commerce had been around for a while, but say 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't that commonplace. Not every single brand had a website. And Net-A-Porter and ASOS and all of those big players were just starting um, and all of the apps were just coming in a few years later. So I kind of started in with that because I loved the innovation side of it. And I thought, this is so exciting. There's so much that can be done. So I primarily worked um, in the fashion industry with brands who were looking to go and explore what they could do with technology. And, uh, I was helping them with their branding, marketing, globally, commerce strategies, stuff like that. And at some point, I think I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine at work and I was saying, you know, I'd love to do my own company one day. I've, I'm such a t-shirt and jeans girl. I should just do some t-shirts. And, um, we started talking about sustainability, which I hadn't really come up, heard come up yet. It was a very new concept before sustainability started becoming a keyword a few years ago. Everyone was still talking about whether it's organic, so, or, you know, animal free. So I started looking into it and it was like this vortex of information that I got warped into because I just could not believe how bad and how messy the fashion industry was. You know, we put on these amazing marketing campaigns and we make everything look so pretty and there are these beautiful clothes and these beautiful fashion shoots. And behind the scenes, it's just atrocious what's going on. Um, And I don't don't just mean how horrible it is for the environment as well as, um, you know, for the millions of people working in the industry, um, but also just how incredibly inefficient and wasteful it was and that to me for somebody who had just been spending years of their life looking at how i can get a better return on investment for this marketing campaign and was obsessed with efficiency and growth was thinking how is this industry operating like this excessive amounts of waste of fabric of you know using chemicals that are basically polluting the ocean and polluting the land to the point where you know you can't keep on going like there is an end point there is a finite point to how much pollution can actually happen before you use up that resource and not be able to use it again Um, as well as just you know you're, you're working these people to the point of death and that's like quite morbid sorry to have to bring up on a podcast but if you think about things like Rana Plaza in Bangladesh where I can't remember the specific number, but I think it might have been a thousand or two thousand people died in that building coming down. And you're looking at this industry which is so glossy on the front, and you're thinking, "This is just crazy. How can this happen?" So, I started really deep diving into all of the things that were going wrong with, you know, the backside of the industry, in the production side, and how it really works, and what the problems really were. Because to this day, we. you know it's still not very well informed um to people in the industry about all the problems. A lot of people just think it's about what fabric you use, but it's obviously much more um behind the scenes about the full life cycle of you know how it's made um so I went on a total nerd fest for about two years and just I went and visited probably like you know, 20 or 30 different factories. I was going and visiting dyeing mills all over Europe, um, washing like textile mills, um, going to every single fabric show I could and just learning as much as I could to try and figure out how I could create the most sustainable t-shirt. And I just literally focused on t-shirts. So it's like, that's what I wear. That's what I want to do. Seems like it makes sense. There are 11 billion t-shirts sold a year. If you can make a dent there, that's, you know, a pretty good place to start. There are more people buying t-shirts every day than there are designer dresses. So maybe we should lay off on some of the big fashion designers who are probably only selling like five pieces of that item, which might not be very sustainable, but it's not like they're selling that many of them anyway. So why don't we focus on the things where people are actually buying them on a daily basis? Like that's where we should really you know focus on. So. Um, at this point, I uh, have a company called Sustainability, T-E-E. Um, it's predominantly a business-to-business player. So instead of me focusing you know, directly on the consumer market and selling as a very glossy brand to customers, out of those 11 billion T-shirts that are sold a year, well, some people say it's 7 billion, some people say it's 11 billion. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows what the actual answer is. A huge chunk of those, I would go to say maybe 50% to 75% are taken up by companies like Haynes and Gildan and other really big mass volume producers where people are buying those t-shirts to go and print and embellish and do their own designs on them for whatever reason, whether it's promotional day at Facebook where they want to give out you know, a free t-shirt or whether it's a musician who wants to do some type of graphic for tour merch. These are billions of t-shirts sold a year. So I thought, well, if I'm actually trying to make a dent in the industry and if I actually want to do something, then why don't I start in a place where, you know, there's such high volume because I think that logically makes the most sense versus a brand, which might do really well and have a really great message, but you know, you might not actually be moving the needle that much in terms of the overall industry's sustainability.
1: In terms of, you know, what are the climate, environmental, and social challenges the fashion industry, you know, fa- has, you know, faces. So let's talk about it, you know, on one hand, Sasha, what are the key stats and data points on the environmental and climate, um, uh, you know, damages and, and issues the industry has? And then that's, you know, maybe just one or two key data points or color, or, you know, some color on the the social Um Issues uh, in the fashion industry. Sure.
0: Um, Well, I know I say things like life cycle um, a lot or circular concepts, and what I mean by that, in order to frame what I'm going to go into about the key issues within um, or challenges for the environment and for social fairness within fashion, is that when you're thinking about the life cycle, that you have to think about from the very start of the process of that product, what is the raw material. How was it grown or made? You know, in terms of polyester, it's, it's man-made out of fossil fuels. It's basically plastics turned into string. Um, how was it processed? You know, what type of energy and um, chemicals were used, water, et cetera, and go all the way through to where it was cut and sewn, spinning, dyeing, when somebody wears it, and then what they do after with it does it end up in a, in a landfill. So just think about the circle of life concept, but for an actual product. So there are seven main areas that we should identify as key pillars within the challenges um, for sustainability in the fashion industry. So the first one is um, chemicals. So there are an enormous amount of chemicals. I think it's something like 8,000 chemicals used in fashion production. So some of these have neurotoxins in, carcinogens, um, And other hazardous materials to the point where it's now responsible, the fashion industry is responsible for 20% of water pollution, which is kind of crazy. I don't think many people understand. And where that water pollution is really coming from is when the fabrics are being dyed. So that's about the third or fourth stage of the life cycle of the item. When it's being dyed, a lot of the time that water gets let out straight into water streams, rivers or whatever, and you can see, if you do your research, some rivers or streams that are absolutely just dyed purple from all of the pigment in them, going out into the ocean and obviously killing marine life, contributing towards, you, know, acidifying coral reefs um, and causing a full-on effect within um, other environmental issues. So again, with water, so if you think about chemicals and how you use them and how you get rid of them, the effluents. Um, that would be the first part of it. The second part I always talk about is water, which is a continuation. So now we know that it's 20% of water pollution. But the other really important part is that a lot of fashion production and just manufacturing in general is done in water-scarce regions. So while we might be using 800 or 8,000 or however many gallons of water it takes to dye a garment or wash a fabric before it gets dyed, that is actually draining the water from the local community. So a lot of these communities might be fighting for their basic need of drinking water because it's being taken by manufacturing. So a way to combat that is um, some companies, not that many that I know of now, have actually implemented water recycling procedures. So instead of them just constantly draining the local water sources, they will recycle the water. So it's a continuous cycle. Um, the third area, which is a bit of a hot topic these days is microfibers and microplastics. So the fashion industry is responsible for estimated 20 to 35% of microfibers and microplastics in the ocean. That's a huge number. Like think about it, clothing, how that actually happened. Um, so unfortunately, uh, Two-thirds of clothing are made out of synthetics, and most synthetics do release microplastics and microfibers. So in that, a synthetic can be a polyester, and basically what happens is when you put it in the washing machine, small little flecks of plastic come off and go out through the, the laundry. The problem that we're having, and this ties back into greenwashing, is that recycled polyester has the same problem. So you put recycled polyester in the washing machine and it's still gonna come out with all of those flecks. So it's Much as recycled polyester is better than, you know, polyester, there are still issues with it. Um, So to recap on where we are so far, we've got, you know, toxic chemicals, water, microfibers. Um, The fourth, obviously, probably the hottest topic, you know, right now, other than social fairness, is greenhouse gas emissions. So the fashion industry is responsible for 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions, so that's more than all international flights and maritime shipping combined. Again, it's staggering, the number. So those greenhouse gas emissions are coming from the factories when they are spinning that fabric, when they are dyeing that fabric. They're also coming from nitrous oxide, which is released from the pesticides that get sprayed on cotton fields when they're not organic, or you know other natural fibers that are getting pesticides. It's also... Happening with um, you know, the release of methane obviously from cows when cows are literally bred just to create leather. Um, so those we have our three main greenhouse gases. We've got carbon, nitrous oxide, and methane all contributing. Obviously, carbon is is one of the bigger ones within that, and the push for renewable energy within the factories that we use um is is not quite strong enough yet, but. We'll get back into that later. Um, So, then the amount of waste ending up in landfills, going back into the idea of polyester. So, polyester pretty much never biodegrades. They say it's something like if it takes over 1,000 years to biodegrade, then it's considered non biodegradable. Forgive me if that 1,000 years is wrong and it's more like 500, but either way, you get the point. It's going to sit there forever. So if you think of two thirds of our clothing are made from synthetics like polyester and nylon, and those don't biodegrade, that's a huge amount ending up in landfills. So that's just going to sit there. Oh, and that releases methane as well, by the way. Um, So when I can't remember the actual biological biologic process that happens, but as it bacterias start to come at it, it starts to release some type of gas. Um, So 73% of clothing ends up in a landfill. And I think it's like less than 1% of clothing ends up in a proper recycling system. So we're creating enormous amounts of waste. That's just basically going to sit there forever.
1: Yeah. And if you, and I just want to say, if you combine that with the fact that especially in the last 10, 20 years, the fashion industry you know, has really sort of pushed this notion of fast fashion, which, you know, I, in that I think of H&M Zara, uh, Urban Outfitters, those are like the brands that come to mind on that. And, um, and some of those companies have major issues on labor and social front as well, historically. But uh, the, the issue with fast fashion is it's sort of, you know, kind of creates like psychologically creating this behavior uh, to constantly get new stuff. And, you know, they push prices down, right? Like Zara, you can get, uh, you know, what, what looks like high quality, uh, looks good clothing at a discounted price compared to, you know, designer brands. And the whole notion that Zara wants to tell you is you can buy less of this so you can buy more. And you can just keep updating your wardrobe all the time with us. And that just makes this issue even worse of the amount of clothing that then turns into waste because the sort of even for the given consumer the shelf life if you will of a piece of clothing starts to go down and down as you know fast fashion has really become the rage in the last you know 15 20 years
0: oh yeah well fast fashion is obviously you know the big bad guy in all of this because you know even if you do better with all of the other kind of key things that we're looking at if you're still producing so much and you know a lot of it's not going sold what are they doing with that unsold stuff as well as you know people will wear these things like twice and then they throw them away so that's you know that's a whole consumer behavior shift that i think is already starting to change a little bit but we can talk about that a little bit later um the other two areas that are obviously very important, um, are, you know, social fairness. I was reading the other day that there's over 200 million, um, child laborers worldwide. That means they're between the ages of five and 17. Um, there's also, you know, I'm not saying all of those are in fashion, obviously that's generally to do with a lot of manufacturing and, um, Products that we source from Asia, um, South Asia and Africa, where their governmental legislation is just not as strong and they're not checking on these things. There are problems where people are being paid below minimum wage. Um, there, it's And many times they are not digital um, paying systems, so people get paid in cash. So if somebody says, you know, my boss didn't pay me, there's not really any way you can track that. Um, As well as the fact that a lot of people just wouldn't ever say that because they don't want to get fired. You know, there's no protections or workers' rights. So we are literally a society feeding off of buying things cheap, but the real cost of who's paying for it, because nothing's cheap, you know, in this world. The real cost of who's paying for it is these people who are working elsewhere where their government, you know, in order for them to keep sustaining needs to be exporting. So they're not monitoring all of this stuff. And, you know, some of them are doing some things and I don't want to massively generalize, Um, you know, there are definitely a lot of initiatives going on to try and help this. But if those countries need to export, and then there's the demand for the product coming from us. Now we're the bad guys in this situation, because we're the ones who are saying it's okay to pay that price rather than pay 50 cents more for, to make sure that person actually got paid at the very least a minimum wage, let alone a living wage. So what we're really striving for is that there should be no unprotected child labor, or it should really be monitored, you know, how much children are working as well as any slave labor, which means, you know, they don't have the right to kind of form unions, um, all sorts of things, um, to make sure that men and women, or genders, sexual orientation, social class, that everyone's being treated fairly and that they're being paid properly. Uh, so that's a huge topic within the industry and something that is so incredibly important to tackle.
1: I just wanted to sort of flag the, the hidden cost element I think is important um, to, to, to just emphasize again, uh, there's you know, two main types of hidden costs with anything you buy. And there's you know what I call like human externalities and environmental externalities. And you know this is the challenge of you know sort of existing macroeconomics is they they don't really factor in externalities in the in this regard and there's human externalities in terms of you know the the cost of poor living conditions for the people behind that that product or service and there's environmental externalities and neither one of those is factored you know directly into you know the PNL and the uh, the profitability of that company and so they just get pushed you know, basically into other areas of responsibility. And it just creates, creates kind of this tangled mess. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a working theory out there that, you know, I don't want, I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Because it's a little off topic, but you know, around what's called donut economics. And I would encourage anybody that's interested in this to, to look up the the book donut economics. And I'm drawing a blank on the economist who uh, is a woman who kind of pioneered this theory but it does, a, uh, it's sort of rewriting the rules of, of macroeconomics to account for externalities of the products and services we, we produce. I was
0: gonna say, I don't know, I, I've heard the term donut economics before, but I don't think I've ever looked up what it is. But it sounds a lot like what I believe in, which is natural capital, where you should be taking into your balance sheet or your assets, liabilities, or whatever the natural, which is the environmental capital, as well as the human capital that you're using and make sure that you're constantly reinvesting in them. And that doesn't necessarily mean like physically reinvesting money, how you know into you know, a market as we would typically think, but making sure that you're p- protecting things and ensuring their safety and health so that you kind of have like a long-term relationship with them. Um, so that's definitely where my philosophical base lies.
2: Um, sorry, I had a question there. So do we automatically assume that whenever a price on an item is low, then there are environmental and human costs related to it that we just don't know of or don't want to know of?
0: You know, I would never say absolutely to that because I don't think that's fair. There are really talented people working in production at a lot of these big brands who are doing things and the way that they do get low prices is because they're producing such high volume. So there's two sides to this is basically how a factory works is if you can give them steady business. So imagine if I'm producing t-shirts and It's very efficient for the factory line to just have that one product that they're making over and over and over and over again. They can do that. Like they can make those products quickly because they're not having to change the machines. They're not having to change the patterns that they cut. They're just constantly doing the same thing and they're not having to retrain people. So if you're a company um, that has, you know, certain styles that they're constantly producing all year round, like sweatpants, t-shirts, socks, underwear, where the style and cut stays the same, you can have incredible efficiencies that can really help get you better prices because the factory owners might say, well, it's a lot easier for me to buy that fabric in bulk knowing that I'm going to be using this much in advance. And it also means I don't have to spend as much time retraining people. I'm not losing three hours out of my day changing the machines um, you know, every other day. So you get more hours in the day to do it. So that's like if you've got homogenous products, I do think it's possible to get good prices. But on the flip side, um, you can also think about, you, you can tell, when you buy something from H&M and Zara and you put it in the washing machine, how long does it last?
1: I don't know. I don't buy H&M Zara. <laughs> <So> I, <laughs> I definitely don't buy Zara.
0: <laughs> okay, wrong, wrong, wrong audience. I'll I'll tell you because I used to shop at them both and I still shop at Zara's Join Life um, because I I do like some of their stuff and Join Life tends to be fairly good or at least, you know, better um, than most. Um, So you put them in the washing machine once, they lose their shape, the fabric loses its feel. And why is that? That's because think about if you are making a salad and you use, or you're making vegetables, right? And you use frozen vegetables what do they taste like they don't taste that vibrant they don't taste that great how do they taste if they're you know from the farmer's market and they're locally sourced great you can actually you know really taste what that vegetable or fruit is meant to be so it's kind of the same thing with making a product if something's so sorry you're buying those frozen peas or broccoli or whatever because it's cheaper and You know, I don't want to get into the socioeconomics of this. Let's just take it as an analogy. Um, So if you think about making a product, you can source cheaper materials or you can source more high quality materials that might last longer. So if you're trying to get as low prices as possible... so. Obviously, when you are buying that end product, most of the time, if it's fast fashion and it's cheap, you're just looking at its shelf value. How pretty is it? And what's it cost? And how good is it going to look this night? You're not thinking about its long-term viability. And so they don't design for the long-term viability. And then it is cheap. And I think you know, the question of whether people are being paid fairly, I mean, that is one that I can... so. The quality of the materials, we've covered that, but the whole notion of fair wages, which should be a living wage um, above minimum wage, there's pretty much no, like hardly any factories in the world paying that. So you can pretty much be absolutely guaranteed that they are not being paid properly if it's being produced in Asia, South Asia, or Africa. If it's a luxury brand and they're producing in Italy or somewhere in Europe, well, Europe has a lot of regulations about wages and fairness and they're a much more socially conscious um, group of countries so you can be pretty sure that i don't know how much you know they're making and whether it's completely fair but it's definitely going to be somewhat monitored because the governments there will make sure that things are versus these other countries where there's far less accountability and far less protection we i have a a business partner and um, they we've been in this program or they've been trying to implement this for four years now um, with a couple of other independent bodies. So it's not like they've just been sitting around, not caring. It's been a four year project trying to figure out how we can implement living wages in every single factory that we work with. So if we're going to this extent and, you know, we really want to make sure, you know, we, I can't imagine who else cares more about this than we do. It's such a passion for everybody that I work with. Can you imagine what companies, all of these big brands, how hard it is for them with the hundreds of factories that they work with? I'm not giving them an excuse, but if they're working with hundreds of factories to be able to track that, it's, it is really hard. Um, So, you know they definitely need to be more transparency between the factories and the brands about payment and i think the big brands have the power to demand proper payment
1: i want to let's talk about that for a second because the you know there's you know one of the skeptics like a, a skeptical point of view would be if 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 one would say hey it's on the brands to you know uh, draw the line on demanding um, that you know the factories are buying from are paying a living wage and, and like they, and if that means they have to increase the cost of their pro of their products and they have to increase the cost of their products or lower their margin, the, the, the challenge there is how, how do you do that when not e- without every brand doing that? Because as long, so, so if you're the brand, right. And you, and let's say you legitimately want to do that, but as long as there's any other brands that are fine, not doing that, then you're going to, in theory, you're there. I have to increase costs and lose demand to them or you're going to have to stay at the same cost to the end consumer because other brands are not making those changes um, and lower your margins. And then like, that can be a pitfall of your, like that, that can put you out of business. So it's, it's a very complicated problem because I'm, I'm curious what you think about, how do you, how do you solve for the fact that in a world where not every brand is doing this, how is it actually doable? Because the nature of, Free market competition just means that if hey, if brand X is brand X and brand Y selling the same more or less thing to the same consumer, and brand X says, you know what, I, you know, fair like living wages, and they you know, say let's like take that for you know for now, we we we'll come back to the environmental issues. Living wages are a priority. We're gonna charge more for our products so we can do that. But then, but brand Y says that we're we're still not going to. No one's forcing us to. And uh, this is great for us because. Brand X is going to like, we're going to get brand X customers because the cust- not enough customers really care about that. And we actually, because of greenwashing, we can just say we're doing the same thing. Nobody knows any difference anyway. And then all of a sudden brand X loses their business over time by trying to do the right thing. And obviously I'm, I'm like, this is a, there's way more nuance than this and I'm oversimplifying it for the, the purpose of uh, like the hypothetical, but talking about the end consumer, And the majority of end consumers majority either don't care or are not going to investigate, um, beyond the headline claim. And so like, again, back to brand X here, that's making the right changes, but then losing their business accordingly to brand Y, what, 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 what is brand X supposed to to do? So
0: first of all, um, I think so many people at these big brands are so afraid to try and tackle this because they're so afraid one of how difficult it is, you know, to implement, considering that a lot of these factories, as I said before, aren't even paying people digitally, they're still paying by cash. So, you know, there's a whole issue of tracking. Secondly, the issue is how do you calculate a living wage? There's a few different ways of doing it, but that's going to vary. Like, say, just even in India varies according to what part of India you're in, right. And, and particular situations. So, you know, that's the second problem with it. The third problem is, you know, how do you make your factory do it? If you're the only brand working with your factory, that's pushing for it. Um, You know, what if your factory's working with 20 different brands and none of the rest of them care. How can you make them change? That's the third problem. However, I will say we actually, um, in our project that we're working on, we've calculated it only takes 50 cents more to pay our entire supply chain, a living wage, 50 cents more per product. What I'm doing is extremely price sensitive. So that that's, probably a bit of a challenge for me, but for other brands, like when you're selling things for like 20 bucks, sell them for 2050. It's it's literally 50 cents more. That's all it was. It's the implementation side of it that is really difficult. I actually found um, that it was more expensive for us to increase the quality of our product than it was to pay people fairly. Now that's kind of crazy, I mean, when we were in product development, I didn't like the way this fabric was feeling, and I wanted them to wash it differently or do that differently or whatever it was. That added like a dollar more on. But if I want to pay people a fair wage, that only adds fifty cents. So I personally found that mind blowing. Um, again, the difficulty really lies in implementing because one of the factories we're working with is saying, you know, that they would love to, but that they are. So this is the flip side. The factory said that the other brands that they work with don't care and they've tried to implement it before, but the other brands say they don't, they can't add that extra price into their product. So the factory says we can't afford to pay a living wage because the other brands will not pay any higher prices because as a brand, what you're doing and the way we've all been taught is you've got to make something for as cheap as possible and sell it for the most you can or within your competitive band, right? To increase your margins as much as possible. So you imagine if you're in production or sourcing, your entire job is about finding a factory that can make a product to a decent enough level. Um, Or if you're in a more premium sector, obviously you're looking for someone who can do exceptional quality. So you're, you're looking, who's going to do this job the cheapest for me? So all of these factories are then taught that their main competitive advantage is on their price, as well as their speed and several other factors, but they know that their price is going to make or break a deal. So it is, I think, probably going to have to take a few. So I can't talk too much about it. So I would like to say something that we're working on, but it's too early. So I'm I'm not going to get into it. But I think it will take a few different brands all of a sudden going out there and being able to prove that they are paying a living wage and put, which will help put pressure on other brands to do so because the fashion industry, at least the competitive side of the fashion industry, um, you know, they all know they've got to keep up with the Joneses. And if one brand within their competitive set is paying a living wage they absolutely know that they will have to start figuring it out for themselves as well because they're all competing so tightly that any competitive advantage they have in terms of their marketing or their product um they're gonna have to be able to match otherwise they're going to lose market share
1: yeah and the last thing I'll say on this topic, and then i want uh, i want to get to Nar- get to Nari's point and then and and then move on to the next one just just an issue of time here is it just seems like there's three real. Sort of positions of power on this play pow, power players in this social on um, the fair labor and, and social side of the industry, which I would say the 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 larger brands themselves the consumers and where they choose to spend their dollar and regulation it's hard for me to put any like you know sort of responsibility in as much responsibility I wouldn't say not any but as much responsibility on the factories themselves because they're kind of at the whim of what the you know what the brands are willing to pay them um, and, and buy from them. So, um, it, it it seems like it's going to take, you know, significant efforts from all three, um, you know, the government side on, you know, creating actual standards that are audible, auditable and, and consistent, um, on the brands of, of like doing the right thing to your point of like paying that extra 50 cents, but also on consumers and, you know, where you choose to spend your dollar. And we're going to get into that in a second, helping consumers do that. But, you know, for people that say, like, what can I do? I'm just an individual. This is just another case of, like, you can choose where to spend your money. And you can choose on which brands you spend it on. And that does go a long way. Nari, right, what was the question or point you wanted to make before we move to the next topic?
2: Um, yeah, I was just going to say, um, competitions is certainly, like, a big driver for the brands. And, and hopefully, uh, what Sasha was saying, if if one or two do that and can prove they're doing that, others will follow. But however, like, it's really hard to demand that, like to believe that's going to happen with brands because um, they have a fiduciary duty to just increase the value of their business and increase the volume. So I think um, I, I sort of had this comparison in my in my head, like no matter how cheap like a car is, if it doesn't have a seatbelt in, you probably would never buy it. And there w- wouldn't be a possibility for anyone to sell a car without a seatbelt or without all the kind of checks and Security stuff done um and 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 that's to do with regulation and and safety and like the basic things that need to be there for a consumer. I think the role of the government and regulation here is really really underestimated like what needs to be done to increase the standards for the whole industry that everybody will play uh by the rules because demanding this sort of um and and we're gonna come back to the consumers but but I think it's it's quite it's really. Comfortable if you do earn a good wage and you know about all of these issues to sit there and say, well, uh, you know, you don't need to go to Zara, you don't need to go to H&M, but um, a lot of people don't have the resources to know what's going wrong, and they don't even have the resources to pay um, two dollars more or three dollars more or you know, ten dollars more for a better quality um, product. So it, it's the same like with with food, right? If if you go to the vegan um, shelf. Uh, oftentimes it's a lot more expensive than, um, you know, buying meat or the non-vegan stuff in a supermarket. So, um, I do think uh, like it's asking, like putting all this burden on the consumer is, is unfair. Like, I think there needs to be, um, an environment that gets the consumer there and helps them make
0: those choices from so many different sides. That's, that's where I stand with it. Yeah that really really good points there I completely agree with you and I think probably the key within sustainability in general is let's not just corner ourselves in for me thinking about the fashion industry but just the whole world in general I think we're at a bit of a crux point now where we're evaluating how we are what we've been doing in the past and how we want to move forward I think it's very timely now that people are going to people are asking these questions of why are we doing business in this way? And why is our society built in this way where we're just, you know, exploiting and driving prices down? And then, you know, the reason why people can't pay for a, a, a product, which was made in a great way is because maybe they aren't being paid. Maybe, you know, there were reasons why they weren't able to get, you know, a, a more um, financially successful job, Um, So I think we are asking all of these questions now. I think within the fashion industry, they are really, I mean, I can say, you know, whatever negative or bad things, um, you know, we want about them. But I do think, you know, obviously I have a lot of friends who work in the industry and people are becoming very, very, very aware of these problems and they really were not five years ago. So you know if you think within the industry they're only just starting to realize all these things cuz the it's never really been brought to their attention before to be honest like people weren't thinking about this 10 years ago well maybe some were the early adopters but if you imagine all the people working in the industry on the front side of the marketing the sales the design didn't even know these things and of, of course you know there has been no collaboration to create a system of universal metrics or standards that which we all abide by, but they are starting to now because people are getting more aware. I mean, there's um, there was a fashion pact signed in Paris like a year or two ago where I think it was like the top 50 worldwide fashion brands made an agreement to phase out um, carbon and greenhouse gas emissions by, I, I think it was 2035. I'm not sure, I would need to fact check that. And that does show that some of the collaboration is starting to happen and the missing part we have is as you said is the the regulations from the governments and that also includes um you know the u.s government and the uk government how they tax imports you know if a product can prove that it was made in a fair way then maybe the taxes shouldn't be high on the importation of it Um, but that would rely on those governments caring about the welfare of you know foreign laborers and foreign countries and foreign environments um so i think we've got a ways to go
1: yeah the role of government is you know it it frustrates me sometimes when i hear you know people think of the world as you know just like no government involvement in the economy or government control and the sort of you know capitalism versus socialism and there's nothing in between and part of that is just sort of the state of, of of politics especially in the U S here today and going into this election and that's sort of been framed that way. But the truth is, is like, there's plenty of in between ground there and there's plenty of opportunity to have a free market competitive open system where there are still some, you know, checks and balances against that. And I think what we've seen happen in the last 20, 30, 40 years is even going back further to let's say the end of world war II, is sort of just unhinged capitalism, growth for the sake of growth, and not factoring in these hidden costs of environmental and human externalities, and 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 the government has to step up and ha- and and sort of put down standards to factor those in, um, along with corporations doing better, along with uh, you know consumers making better choices. So I agree, you know, wholeheartedly with Nari that like there is a regulatory role here for sure. Uh, I think that's a good segue into, and I want to just on a time check we're we've been recording for about an hour, which is usually how we like to usually like the, the sort of limit of the podcast. And we haven't gotten the, through half the agenda yet. So if we can, um, you know, I'll try to sort of uh, just be as succinct as we can for the, the remaining parts of the discussion. But what what I want to make sure we touch or touch on next is just to help people understand, you know, why greenwashing is even an issue to begin with because I'll talk to a lot of people who say, okay, so what? Like, yeah, a lot of people are out there, you know, uh, you know, greenwashing or making exag- you know, exaggerations or false claims. But, you know, that, that that that's 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 on them. It's on the consumer to figure it out. Um, you know, sort of just like, hey, that's just human nature. It's not that big of a deal. What I want to highlight for people is it is a big deal, and it's a big deal. Uh, you know, on one hand, because it's sort of, you know, kind of you know, it's like a one step forward, two step backwards sort of pace that we start moving at because, okay, we're having these things in the conversation, but if, if greenwashing goes so unchecked, we're actually not making the changes. We're actually not improving our carbon emissions and our, and our living standards for uh, the supply chain. If, you know, we let greenwashing kind of go there unhinged, uh, so to speak. Um, And so, you know, it actually can be counterproductive to the whole you know, sort of progressive change of these industries by letting it go unchecked. The other thing that worries me the most is you get to a point where a word like sustainability, a word like transparency, a word like organic, just, you know, becomes such a mess to navigate on the consumer side that it starts to mean nothing. And you get to a place where then, okay, so what, you know, the folks doing it right can't actually get credit for doing it right. And can't actually make a, cl- like, you know, can't shift demand even for the consumers looking for that because it's so easy to just lie about it and create, make false claims that the words themselves start to lose all their meaning and lose all their consumer trust to where it's like, even if the government were to step in and create rules around sustainability, it's too late because consumers have already lost trust for that word and it's already gotten like just so noisy uh to the to the point where it doesn't it loses all its value even if if you wait too long. Um uh, I'm curious do you do you both share those those similar concerns?
0: Um now I I'm curious if you want to go first because I've just been yapping away for the last hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that was the point of the
2: podcast having me do that. <laughs> uh yeah I um I, I do agree with you. I think um, I think we are at a point where a lot of those words are, are losing meaning but at the same time and we have touched upon this topic during the podcast a few times like other episodes I think like um, the younger generation is a lot more aware and uh, they are giving like a new meaning to those words and they are going to be a lot stricter in terms of um, what do you actually mean when you use those words and maybe we'll have new words come up um, so there are you know, two sides to the story. But I do agree that um, uh, we, we need to tackle this issue. Otherwise, it's all going to become like one big mess. And then there's no incentive for anybody to do the right thing. And uh, when there are no incentives, really nothing happens. And we know how society works. Um, that's, that's just the basics. So, yeah, this, this needs to be addressed. And I actually wanted to ask Sasha about, um, she talked a little, a little bit, I think, about proving um, the claims. Um, And that's quite a complicated issue, I believe. So um, would you just share a bit more? Like, how can you actually get audits done? Are there any bodies that are like third parties that are doing it today? How does that whole process work? How can you prove that you're not just doing like marketing speak, but
0: it is actually what you're doing and practicing? Um, What are the ways to do that today? So um, everything I do um, has third party certifications, which I talked about earlier. So one of these third-party certifications can certify, you know, how you treat your water. Um, they can certify that the fabric is what you say it is. Um, just, you know, for example, if you were ordering, um, you know, a spinach smoothie somewhere and they gave you like an arugula one instead, but they tried to convince you it was spinach. Like the same thing goes on with fabrics. You can say, I want polyester or recycled. And you could say you want recycled polyester and they give you polyester. If it's not certified, like you, there's not really any way to tell. Um, so there are certification bodies, as I said, that do water fabrics, um, you know, that certify they're organic, they certify how you treat your labor. So there's all sorts of different ones. The problem is, um, like I was saying before, is that they're not very, um, you know, consumer and consumer focused. They don't really explain the depths at which they go to. So a lot of them actually do look at the full supply chain and have a lot more to them than, Um, their name might allude to, like GOTS organic certification actually goes into detail about water treatment chemicals. It's not just about the fabric being organic. It's making sure that the whole process of how it's handled for the full life cycle um, hasn't had any hazardous toxic chemicals um, or environmental pollution. So, you know, they um, can explain, the brand can explain that on the website. Um, Then actually, you know, what's even better an app. It's called Good on You. Um, it is either Australian or New Zealand. I can't remember where where it's from, but it started about two or three years ago. And they have an index rating of all the brands um, and how sustainable. <laughs> yeah, you should check it out because they actually. This would probably be an easier answer for your question from listening to somebody who's, you know, knee deep in um, the weeds of this and navigating all of it on a daily basis. So I'm obviously going to give you the complicated answer. Here's a simple answer. There are websites and apps now which do this work for you. So good on you. Um, Definitely download it. They index all of the certifications as well and explain to you what they all mean. And then they index the brands and give them a smiley face rating on how sustainable they are. Um, there are also a whole bunch of um, e-commerce startups who are specifically only carrying sustainable items, which have certified third-party certifications. So I know about five, which have either just launched or are launching kind of within the next year. Um, so they have scoured the earth for the most sustainable brands. And most of these are being driven by Gen Z And Gen Z, wow, you know, hats off to them. They did their research on this. They didn't just take people at face value. They went and they're like, oh, well, what certification? Because a lot of them have approached me, um, you know, so I've seen what types of questions they ask and they're asking the right questions. So you will be able to go onto these websites and you will be able to see things that truly have valid, sustainable claims which ones are more sustainable than the other? Well, that's, you know, a phase we have not yet got to. Um because, you know, we can start rating how sustainable each certification is against each other and start looking at the full life cycle. Um that would be the next step, but for now, let's settle on these e-commerce sites and good on you.
2: Sounds great. I just actually checked it out and it, it looks really good. I had no
1: idea. Thank you. Before getting into that checklist, Getting back into some of the environmental issues, one of the things I want to unpack, because Sasha, I like I always like talking to you about this, and and I've learned a lot about this from you, is the notion of, you know, kind of recycled versus, you know, sustainable organic. I think, you know, there's also a misconception that recycled is always better. Right? That if it's it, it, you know, if, if you're making it from something that has already been, you know, made and processed that's always better than making anything, you know, you know, right from the earth. And, you know, that, that is something that I, I, I encounter a lot with people who are, you know, kind of confused by that. And obviously it's not true because there's, first of all, very few things are a hundred percent recycled. They, and, 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 and this is gets back into the greenwashing issue. You could, you could have 10% of your fabric recycled and 90% of it, you know, sort of harvested and, and, and sourced as bad as it gets and you can put a recycled label on it, right? So that's one issue. It's not always 100% recycled. Two, not all recycled materials are great. And I think the one that comes to mind is recycled, you know, polyester um, and people sort of, um, you know, drawing that from plastic bottles. And I see it all the time of like, this shirt is made from seven plastic bottles, but then every time that shirt goes to the washing machine, tons of microplastics are released. And, you know, put into back into the oceans. And I think there's something like 500 million tons of plastic being put in the oceans every year from specifically from microplastics coming out of washing machines. So that's just like that's just, you know, it's 500 million tons a year. And so that's another example of where a recycle can be a misnomer. And also the fact that, you know, to say everything that comes directly from the earth is always bad. That's also not true because there are regenerative agriculture and farming practices. There is a way to farm that actually is good for the soil and productive for the local ecosystem. That's just unfortunately not where a lot of modern agriculture at scale um, uses. But there are ways to do that. So, can you, you know, you know, kind of quickly talk through the sort of the the notion of recycled versus organic and some of the misnomers around uh, this topic.
0: Sure. Um, I mean, I think you already just did my job for me, but I'll add a couple other points. I'm so glad someone has actually listened to something that I've said. I'm in shock. I can't believe it. Um, Normally, my friends are falling asleep by the time I get to that part of the conversation. Um, Okay, anyway, uh, so recycled. So again, it's this concept of I'd really love to figure out a better way of saying the life cycle of a product, but it's not black and white. So if you know, it's a huge gray area. If it's organic, um, you know, it is can be really nutritious for soil. It's providing crops, um, you know, and, um, you know, helping farmers have a living. You know, there are all these good things. If it's done right, the soil is actually really healthy and it's actually a really, really good thing. And also when you that product is at the end of its life, um, it decomposes into more organic material. So essentially you're, you know, creating from the soil and you're going back to the soil and it does complete that circle of life concept. Um, if it's you know, not done well, then obviously there's toxic chemicals all along the way and pollution and whatever you have it on every single step. Recycled, great. So, you know, you want to use some plastic bottles. Um, There was actually an interesting article about the demand for plastic bottles from recycled waste has gone up so high that it's now becoming really expensive because guess who else wants those recycled plastic bottles? Coca-Cola and Evian. You know, we're taking the plastic from the drinks companies, and we're raising the prices because it's now cool to say that your t-shirt is made from recycled plastic bottles or ocean plastic. So again, we'll think about the full life cycle. Sometimes recycled polyester, which is essentially what um, ocean plastic or plastic bottles are, is good. If it was made in a good way, say in a closed loop system where they're not letting any nasty chemicals out into the water, um, and say it's made for like a bag or a hat or something that's not going in the washing machine, that's great. Um, If you are making it for clothing that's going in the washing machine and that plastic was recycled in a hugely carbon combusting energy intensive factory, that's imagine trying to recycle plastic, what you have to do with it. That's so many chemicals. You're basically having to melt this plastic down to, you know, a liquid, um, To its liquid form. Um, So that's obviously very energy and chemical intensive to do that. And then you create these little pellets from it and then you melt them again and they put them through a sieve and they become this very fine string like hair that gets um, knitted into a fabric. So, you know, you've got to think about how you turn that plastic into its new form is quite intense in terms of energy and chemicals. So, you know, I'm sure there are some companies out there who are doing it in a really good way. Um, but then there are probably others who aren't. So just make sure that you know you're looking for the ones that have these third-party certifications, so that we know it's been done properly, and not slapdash, as we say in the UK. Um, so yeah, I think just you know read between the lines.
1: So I've put together, with you know little research on my side, I put together a mini checklist of things to do when you are, you know, as a consumer um, and wanting to avoid greenwashing and buy from the, the right places. So I'm going to run this by you, Sasha, and see how well I do. <laughs> You're going to grade me on if, um, you know, it, what do you think about this checklist? And if they're, what else is, it might be missing from it. Okay, so number one I wrote down is, is, yeah, this notion of like, what I call like just just kind of look into the the wording, so to speak. Um, you know, natural doesn't always mean organic friendly. Um, recycled doesn't always mean that it's actually better for the environment in the case of the microplastics. So just sort of don't just blindly follow um uh, you know, kind of the buzzy words, if you will, uh, because they they could they could be misleading. The second one is for brands that are, you know, claiming to be uh, sustainable and, uh, cruelty-free and all these things actually look at numbers, not just their words, like what numbers are they disclosing about their supply chain? What numbers are they disclosing about their footprint? Um, you know, cause like they, I mean, again, and of course you can fabricate and massage those, but it's, it's a big step forward. If a brand's actually putting numbers out there versus just, just purely saying words, the the third one I have is the misnomer of of, of veganism. Um, this is particularly an issue I think in the synthetic space, where you know uh, you know like, you know faux fur, faux leather. People can say it's vegan, but it could be made with oil and petroleum, which is like where a lot of synthetics come from. And yeah, if something is made with oil, it is vegan. Like it's not made from an animal product, but it doesn't mean it's good for the environment. This is my general frustration with the word veganism in general, which I've had multiple podcasts on, I wrote an article on just sort of how lazy it's become around like, it's like the being, you know, it's just purely like, it's not always super environmental just cause it's vegan. It just, it does mean it doesn't use an animal product, but a lot of, you know, a lot of products that don't use animal sourcing still are very damaging the environment. You know, synthetics come from oils is like an example of that. Uh, the, the next one is, actually finding out where the clothes are made. So like, where are they, where are the factories that, you know, um, these brands, that brand is, is sourcing from, uh, hopefully they're being transparent about that. If they're not, you can literally ask them and see what their answer will be, uh, from their customer support. And then asking them about like, are those factories providing a wage living wage and not just living wage, but are the conditions of those factories livable and, um, Unhealthy, and, and just we're sort of looking into like where are you originally getting your source products from, and then even beyond the factories, right, where are you getting your source fabrics from? Uh, the lot, the other one is the certifications, as you kind of talked about, whether it's you know GOTS or Cradle to Cradle. Um, you know, anybody to me that is is marketing sustainability should have some third party certification, and like there's not a agreed upon you know consensus on which ones are better, the, the most supreme one. Um, but if you don't have any, like if you literally don't have any independent third party that has certified your system, you know, that, that's a red flag to me. Uh, if I see a brand that doesn't, doesn't have anything at all. And then, you know, the last one is, you know, brands having a holistic approach to sustainability. And by that, I mean, what you'd talk about all the time and your seven steps, but actually looking at it from where are our fabrics coming from? How are they being farmed? How are they then being spun and woven, and where is that happening from? Is there a fair living wage? Uh, you know what how are, what is happening on the wayside? How are we disposing our products? How are we disposing the the runoff materials and the chemicals and the runoff water from t- from from dying and these these sorts of things. Um, you know the the whole life cycle of the product, you know, to me, like that's another thing to look at is is the brand you're buying from talking about, the full holistic approach or are they just honing in on one thing that there are maybe, maybe they even are doing well, but they're, there's just totally disregarding or not even acknowledging all the other factors, which is a red flag. So that's the sort of, I guess, checklist I, I sort of made for myself.
0: Yeah. I think that's great. Especially, um, you know, those couple last points and the not, it is to me, it's a huge red flag as well. When I see somebody just hyping on about, like one particular thing, I'm like, okay. So, if you were doing everything that great, I'm sure you'd be talking about all of it.
1: Nari, I'm curious for you as a consumer and someone who, you know, I would I would put you in the conscious consumer bucket because uh, we we've talked about this. But how with a with with clothing and apparel specifically, have you noticed your shopping habits change in the last five, ten, fifteen years?
2: Um. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. I, um, to be fair, like, I do not spend a ton of time to, um, to do research on brands and things that I'm buying. Um, What I do is, and and this has developed, especially in the last five years, um, I try to decrease consumption in general. And um, that might not be the best advice because we still need people, uh, you know, having jobs and the economy going. But for me uh, personally, that has been like a really healthy uh, way to think about this. So every time I am thinking about making a purchase, I think twice I try not to um, be too impulsive with it or buy things that I know are not going to last and so on. That, that's that been like the easiest mental framework for myself. Um covid and, and this whole period has been very interesting because um it sort of shows you that um you need even less than you thought you would need and um i recently came across a really um cool like new york times article i think they don't always write cool stuff but sometimes they do um about uh, the end of fashion and kind of uh, this whole um like the rise of the sweatpants and, and people realizing that uh you know they need less clothes and so on, so I don't know how long that's gonna last, but for me, that's been like the easier way and the lazy way, which um I don't think everybody should follow, maybe collectively it would do us good to think twice before buying something or consuming, but um I'm going to adopt um uh, these other things in the checklist that you guys mentioned um like I said, I already checked out the website, uh, the Good On You uh, that Sasha mentioned. It's, it's really easy. Like it's great design. All the brands are there. Uh, like it's just so easy to navigate. It also shows you where to buy this thing. So it kind of gets you into the habit of finding this niche, amazing brands that are doing really, really well. Um, I wish more of this stuff uh, existed for end consumers because that experience kind of changes the whole behavior for us. Even for someone like me who is, maybe a little bit more aware than the average person I'm just too I'm just too lazy to do my research and I need tools and products that will um, you know be you know much better and faster maybe than the Zara website or app and I I can go and find great brands that I know are good for the environment and I'm I'm gonna pay more um, for for that and for that experience and, and I will definitely do it so yeah um that was um that's kind of my point I, I still need a bit of kind of nudging and uh better experience to make sure uh, I'm doing the right thing and not just cutting down my consumption
0: you know I totally I'm I'm on board with you Nari I I think you're spot on though it's you know consumers are consumers and while I think Gen Z is definitely you know more prone to or you know, do their research because they've grown up with climate change being, you know, right in their faces and something that's been giving them anxiety for years. So I think, you know, they care, but, you know, it's not easy going and having to do all this work to go and find it. So, you know, have have some faith and look forward to there are a lot of these great e-commerce marketplaces coming out, which are going to have done, you know, all of the hard work for you. But also, Remember, fast fashion's only been around for, what, like, 20 years? It wasn't a thing in the 80s, even. I, you know, it's we've only been shopping like this for, you know, probably our generation and the generation before us. Like, it's, you know, it's not like this has been human behavior forever, so... I think, you know, we should also think about that. Like, it's not as if this is the only way we've ever been. My mom tells me stories all the time about when she used to live in Ibiza and she made her own belly chain. And, you know, her and her friends would go and they'd buy an old pair of denim and to make them look cool, she'd like sew on a gold star and stuff. And, you know, she used to hang out with rock stars. She was quite a cool woman, Uh, still is. you know, like it just goes for show that's not you know the the this whole way that we shop now just because that's how it is now absolutely does not mean that that is how it's always going to be because that's not how it's always been.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's quite a few factors that I think um, have created this new environment of of how we buy apparel. I think of you know on one hand the fact that uh, you know logistics and and shipping and, and, and has become such sort of so fast and so cheap, right. That, you know, you, like, I remember growing up, you know, one of the reasons I didn't buy a lot of clothes is I had to literally physically go to the mall and like, like go through this ordeal. Um, and you know, I see some people like physically shopping, but I, I was kind of allergic to it. And, and, um, it sort of prevented me from buying that often, And, uh, but now it's a click of a button and it's on my doorstep the next day. And the bigger brands, it's not just Amazon that's offering, you know, free two day shipping, um, on most everything. It's a lot of, a lot of big brands now too. And that just makes it more convenient to buy more. And so like that, that is a factor, I think social media and how, you know, sort of easy it is to target specific consumers or specific messaging. Um, you know, even if you're like a, uh, whether you're a startup brand or whether you're a reseller uh, I mean the amount of of ads I see for clothes on Instagram are just mind numbing um and and it's just so easy to to target people now that it's just created a lot more you know just a lot more stuff in the market um you know i think I think of sort of the the cost coming down and part of this is like I think the globalization of the economy creates avenues to finding supplies for cheaper. And, you know, more and more countries that, you know, are on the developing side, you know, want to boost their economies. They want to sell goods. And, um, you know, we have more connection points. And by and large, I'm, I'm I'm totally for a globalized economy. And I think it is it's always the right solution. But I think one of the, I think it's a factor, though, in that it's it's, you know, I think of, again, 20, 30 years ago, it'd be very hard for the average person, the average startup, the average entrepreneur, the average designer to go and find you know, a cheap overseas manufacturer of of you know of of apparel, you have to kind of cut and sew it yourself and figure it out more locally. But now it's it's quite easy. And that again just proliferates the market. So I think all of these things have kind of gotten us here, um, to this world of of, of fast fashion and you know, fashion being 10% on the world's carbon emissions and Wages being a thing and greenwashing being being a huge huge issue, and hopefully, like again, through the combination of of strong companies taking leadership posts, um, both incumbents doing the right thing and and new entries like like what you're doing, Sasha. Um, you know, I, I, I and consumers making more conscious decisions, and then also, you know, back to the government uh, regulator regulatory role of really putting standards down. I can't echo enough how valuable it would be. To have a set of standards that is just uniform of like this is what makes something sustainable. I remember talking to you, Sasha, about that um, deck you sent me. This is, I think, back in late July, early August, around um, the the cotton industry, and I had gone through this like seventy four page deck about all the advancement, like all the advancements in you know certified organic cotton and. All these stats on how much better the industry is, and all these people with their quotes, and through the entire 75 slides, there wasn't one slide on this is how we define like sustainable cotton. Like this is like not one single slide. Uh, this on a, on a deck with so much data, there wasn't any data around this is the standard we're operating by. It's just more of like 35% of the cotton is now sustainable. Like how are you defining that? We're not going to tell you. <laughs> it's like ridiculous it's ridiculous
0: yeah i know i know and you know, you know what else it's like it's like because all of the people who are how do i say this well so many of the people that are working in sustainability um and in these kind of governing bodies and independent certifications and stuff A lot of them are from a science background and very technical background, you know, so they really know the data, but I don't know how many people from kind of a marketing background um, and consumer user experience background are working with them because the end consumer hasn't, you know, always been their customer. It's been business and industry. So I think that is part of it is, you know, these companies being run by brilliant people who absolutely know their stuff but maybe the user experience and marketing side of it hasn't always been that emphasized And who knows what they all have plans for now that sustainability is you know getting a lot more attention maybe it'll be something that um they look to um you know fix i think there's going to be a lot of stuff that happens um uh, to nari's point i i think that mass consumerism the way it is now will look very different I think people will spend more time um, thinking about what they buy, or you know, there's been a period of um, brand loyalty going down over the last few years because there's been su- such proliferation of you know um, D2C brands of everybody just you know getting on Shopify and starting their own brand. I think that might start to wane out a bit um, as it becomes more and more competitive and that people are going to start focusing on brands that they know that they can trust um, or e-commerce platforms they know they can trust, um, that they are, again, because of this whole, a lot of people have had a realization that they don't actually need as much as they thought they did. So buying more of you know, things that they really love rather than just um, throw away types of items. Um, I think that sustainability is going to become much more of an industry norm and um, expectation rather than an advantage um, because nowadays if you're in fashion school I'm pretty sure that you're going to have to have a class on sustainability so I think that people who are going into all of these big brands you know coming up um, over the next kind of 10 years will have a much greater understanding of what it is and how to implement it than maybe some of the people who have been in the industry for 40 or 50 years now and um, so I do think, um, you know, as a whole, it will become much more standard to be sustainable and it will maybe not in five years time, but in 10 years time, it will start to become weird if you're not. And people would be like, ew, that's gross. Um, I, I honestly think that uh, just because within the fashion industry. So if you work in fashion right now, sustainability is probably one of the most talked about topics and has been for the last two years. Um so if it's like that now, I, I don't think that's going to stop. I think it's just going to be people learning more about it and addressing different parts of it and focusing in on different parts of it over the next few years. And then in 10 years time, if you know you don't, as a big brand, if you don't have your act together, uh, then, then you're screwed. And actually, I had a conversation with someone who was pretty high up at Calvin Klein about that. And he said that they were investing, the Calvin Klein Group, and obviously this is, you know, hearsay, so don't quote me on it, but the Calvin Klein Group was investing a ton of money into sustainability programs, not necessarily something that they could use right now today, but they were doing a lot of research and development because they felt that if in 10 years time, if you're not sustainable, forget about it, you're dead in the water because Gen Z will not shop you. Are we going to have Fashion Weeks? I could see a lot less of, you know, huge fashion weeks where everyone's crowding around for a week and a lot more kind of independent streaming um, fashion shows. That would be my gut feeling on that. For, like, really popular brands, why would you go to Fashion Week if you can have a spotlight on you and not have to compete with, like, you know, 50 other brands during the week to get, you know, a Vogue article? You can, you know, do it in november and just stream and do something really magical and you know implement virtual reality and holograms and all of that type of stuff
2: yeah makes sense it's a fashion weeks so are kind of um have become a cultural thing but they are so uh inefficient if you think about it so
1: the there's a there's a company uh a woman i met recently who started a company called dress x uh, which is uh give them a a quick shout out here they're they're creating digital fashion on one hand for you know consumers that are just buying stuff for social media posting so if like if you literally don't plan on like owning it you're just doing it for social media which is more common than than we might think uh you can buy a digital dress and then then put it in your photo which it's crazy to think that's how vain like we are but it's true that that is how how vain we are so she's you know she's creating that but also she's doing it for the fashion weeks of the world too um to be able to showcase um you know styles like the inefficiency of fashion weeks right where like they make all this stuff and so much of it doesn't ever get sold or worn past their runway, making it for that reason as well the i also want to just also stress one of the points nari made earlier around like what we all can do better here is just consume less like we you know i I could almost guarantee that, you know, for most anybody, let's say living in lower middle class standards or above um, you, you likely have more, you have more clothes than you need. Like I can like almost, almost guarantee. And you have a lot of things you don't wear um, just consuming less. If you do nothing more, if you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to research, you know, who's greenwashing or not. And I don't have time for that. Totally understandable. If you just consume a little less, uh you're gonna make a positive imprint um on things and we 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 all have too much much more than than so to wrap this up uh just two things real quick sasha i'm gonna do a quick rapid fire question the four questions for you we kind of end the podcast with and um <laughs> the uh the first one is what is a a book any book that you recommend people read or check out related to you know environmentalism climate maybe its specifically um
0: natural capitalism. Uh,
1: yeah. natural capitalism yeah. okay great i have had that one recommended before too. i sent it
0: to um, you but it never arrived i mean i've got the amazon receipt to show that like
1: i oh had yeah. it sent to you. okay all right we'll take that offline sorry about that um uh next question is what's a documentary or film or tv show uh series that you recommend people watch That's like maybe not as mainstream let's say planet earth is very mainstream as an example of that but what's one you recommend people check out? The
0: True Cost, Livia Firth.
1: Cool. And then next question is, what is your favorite animal or wildlife in, on on uh, on the planet?
0: Oh, God, I mean, I have to say my cats because you know they're just they have such funny little personalities. But I mean, they're not my favorite animal. But I'm just gonna go with cats.
1: Okay. Um, domestic, I am talking about like house cats, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then last is what is one behavioral change you would like to see people make, um, that like in a, for, you know, in a pro climate way that you think is doable, but for almost anybody.
0: I'm going to go with you guys on stop buying so much. And I don't just mean fashion. I mean, in general.
1: Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. All right, well Sasha, thanks so much for the time.
0: Great meeting you.